Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, I am going to be interviewing Kirsten Emoff, who is the CEO of Pretty Bird, a wildly successful creative think tank and production company. She also started Ventureland, which is a multi-platform entertainment company, and Pipelines, which is a nonprofit that helps diverse talent find jobs in the entertainment industry. Hi, Kirsten. Welcome to She Dynasty. Super, super excited to have you. I'm such a huge fan of your company and what you've built and super, super proud to have you here today. Yay, thank you for having me. So as you know, uh, She Dynasty is all about talking about your journey, um, about how you got to where you are today so that we can um, begin to mentor younger generations to kind of learn um, how to build. Um, and so we're going to get into uh, a lot about your company today, but before we do that, we want to go back to the very beginning. So I want to learn a bit about where you come from. So tell us, where were you born? I was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was, I lived there until pretty much till graduated high school. And then I was like, this town's not big enough for me. I have to get out. <laughs> And what did your parents do for work? What business were they in? Um, my dad was mostly in sales um, for the phone companies, which kind of like started on the assembly line with Northwestern Bell and ended up running Asia for Lucent technology. So kind of went, you know, all, all different paths with the phone companies as they grew into bigger tech companies. But I mostly remember him as like the sales guy that drove the five state region in Minnesota and would be like driving to Des Moines and Omaha and stuff. And then my mom went to college after she had all of her kids and um, was in journalism and nonprofits and kind of communications and journalism mostly. So were, any, were either of them creatives or were they not so much? I mean, I guess your mom was a journalist, so maybe she had a little bit of creativity in her. Yeah, and her family, a lot of creatives in her family. And like her brother was in advertising and lots of creative people on that side of the family. My dad, definitely not so much. Wasn't a big fan of the creative side. <laughs> that sounds a lot like my family. Um, but you considered yourself to be a very creative kid. Um, did your parents support your creativity and tell us some of the things that, um, you know, when you were young, that kind of were clue that you had kind of a creative spirit? Wow. A creative, I had a spirit for sure. And I know that my parents noticed that because I think I was born as an adult and wasn't one for like kids stuff, but um, I wanted to be a dancer very early on and and I think my mom really supported that and enrolled me in, you know, the basement ballet classes when I was really, really young, which kind of ended up starting my path um, in a performing arts school. And I was definitely a performer, but my, I focused on ballet. And in the performing arts school, you had to do everything. So you had to sing and act and do circus skills and everything. So. I kind of explored all of that, but it wasn't my passion. I love ballet, but I, I knew I was never going to be good enough to be a ballerina. 
So I spent most of my growing up in the performing arts school, and then I would go to public school for a few hours a day, but mostly in shows and kind of not a very traditional kid life for the, the first part of it. Got it. And in your pre-interview questionnaire, you talked uh, about being generally ambitious from a very, very young age. Can you give us some examples of how that ambition kind of manifested? Yeah, I, you know, I was always highly motivated. So, you know, obviously being in the performing arts was a big discipline. I was in classes six days a week. We were doing shows, you know, four to five times a week and rehearsals until late at night. I started working when I was 14. I used to work on the weekends and, and I always just felt like I was going to get somewhere. But um, when I read that question in the pre questionnaire, I don't know where I was going to go. Like some, t- some days I would watch the Miss America pageant. And I'm like, I want to be Miss America or, you know, I just knew that I wanted to get somewhere and I didn't really know how I was going to do it, but I was always going to keep trying to like get to the next step. And I think you and I have that in common. You wrote also that you knew you always wanted to be the boss of anything you do. And I remember <laughs> as a child, no matter what I did, I, I had to be the boss. Like if I joined the Girl Scouts, I had to be the leader. If there yeah. was, um, you know, if we were running for um, office at school, I had to be the president. Like I could never take the second, second spot. Was that something you kind of felt as well? Yes. And I, I forgot I did say that. I think that if my mom was here, she would be saying, if there was a group of kids, I was the bossy one. I was the one who was organizing everyone who had an agenda and this is what we were going to do. And we're going to put on a show in my garage and I'm going to be the star of it. Like that kind of like, I don't, that I didn't, that I was born with, that didn't just show up that like, I could not have just made that happen. Right. One of my favorite things about She Dynasty is um, obviously I'm so blessed that I get to sit down with such um, incredible and powerful and successful women. And I start to see patterns. And I think almost everyone on my show talks about how they were, you know, the bossy kid. Um, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> for those who are listening, who have kids that are bossy and they think it's a problem, um, it usually turns out pretty well on the other side, right? I mean, hopefully, yeah. But it, I think you're also you're afraid of that. You don't want it for some reason. I think as a little girl, you don't want to be the bossy kid. It's not like someone was like, Oh my God, you're amazing. You're this leader. You're this boss. It was like, you're the bossy kid. And that was a negative. It's absolutely true. For some reason, it's not a positive when you're a child, but somehow it translates into adulthood very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the good news. Yes. So you also mentioned that you knew from a very young age that you had an interest in entertainment. Can you tell us some of the things that um, sparked that interest early on? Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I think growing up in the theater um, and and kind of being a performer at that, like I am not, I freeze up in front of the camera now. I'm like the least photogenic person. But when I was young, I was always the super dramatic performer and you know and I was a dancer for a lot of years and so when I started in getting into like the high school age in Minnesota there wasn't a lot of like you didn't think oh I'm going to be on this career path you know most of the people 
I grew up with weren't talking about what colleges they were going to go to. I didn't come from any money. College wasn't really, you know, high on my agenda at, at that time. But I always felt like I like this world of performing and, you know, movies and dancing and all that stuff. And like, I'm going to, I want to live in that world. And so I think I just kept trying to seek what, where I was going to fit in that world. Where did you end up going to college? My first year, well, it's funny because I didn't know anything about, there was no college guidance. There was no, like our, there was an old computer in our flag room in my high school and you'd like type in what your interests were. And then this like massive sheet of paper would come out and it's like, you could be a hairdresser. You could go in the military, like every, every career possible. And so a friend of mine, my best friend in high school was applying to schools and and so she wanted to get as far away from Minnesota as possible. And, and that was the University of Miami. So I was like, oh, let's go together. I'll apply there too. And they had just started a film and video program. So they accepted me and gave me a full scholarship. Oh, wow. So I was like, wow, I'm now going to Miami, which I was not, it was never on my agenda. Right. And I'm gonna be in film and video. And that's like how it all started. I love, you know, you and I have so many things in common and you're going to see as we go through this interview. Um, so I similarly had parents that had no interest in talking to me about college or putting me on a path I had to figure out by myself. Um, so one thing that's super interesting to me is, you know, you talk about you had a friend who just kind of, it sounds like on a whim, just told you what she was doing. And you kind of jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. And I often talk about how like one conversation with someone can like change and shift your entire direction in life yeah. and, how, and how cool that is, especially with your, when you're young, you don't, yeah. you don't tend to put so much thought and consideration into things as you do when you're older. Yeah. Yeah. I tell my kids that too. It's like your path. You don't always see your path. Like sometimes it just reveals itself to you. Absolutely. Um, so I understand. So you ended up going to school in Miami and so your major was film. Yeah. I went my first year um to Miami and it was a very kind of new program for them they didn't really know what they were doing with it it's actually not a bad program now um but I only stayed there for a year and and then transferred to Boston University and continued to study film yeah and then I understand that you had you actually had an advisor that told you that film wasn't right for you yeah another place where we have a similarity so tell me tell me that story I mean, and, and it's so funny because he was right in a way, you know, when we started, when I started there, they have a great film program and I've been involved in that program for many years. And the first assignment we had was doing an in-camera edit and we had super eight cameras and we had to go out and shoot a scene. And I didn't know anyone in Boston. I didn't like have a friend group there yet or anything. So I found a waiter that I worked with at a restaurant and I didn't really understand storytelling. You know, I had always been on the other side of the camera. So I did this little scene and I showed it to my class and it was terrible. And it's obvious that I didn't understand storytelling or editing or anything. And he sat me down and he's like, I don't know that this is your calling. Right. Like, are, are you sure you want to be in this? And I thought, how odd, why would you tell me that with my first assignment in this class and not even give me the benefit of the doubt that this is my interest. And it always stuck with me because 
you know, when you're developing talent or when you're, when you're trying to inspire someone to just be shut down so quickly, um, you know, I, I think that really did push me to say like, screw you. Like, yeah, I do want to do this. Did you feel like you had to prove him wrong? For sure. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I had a, I went to art center and I had a, a professor who was a legend at the time. It was like a big deal to have his class because he was a legend in the business and advertising. And on my, I think my second day of class, we put up our first ads on the wall and he literally took one of my ads off the wall and took a lighter out of his pocket and lit it on fire and <laughs> asked, asked me to leave the class and told me that when I was serious about advertising, I could come back. And wow. yeah, and this was, I mean, I was, when I tell you just mortified, devastated, humiliated, just because he was such a big deal to everyone. And yeah. I, laughed, and I think I cried for two weeks. And at first I just didn't think I could come back, but wow, I came back so much stronger with like, oh my God, I had to prove myself to him. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think there was a big part of me that for as ambitious and as, you know, driven as I have always been there's also a, a, an insecurity that very few people, I guess, see or know about me that is really strong. And, you know, in that situation, I always felt like I, you know, I shouldn't be there. It's like the imposter syndrome. Like, I felt like, wow, they shouldn't have accepted me. They shouldn't have given me a scholarship. Like, who am I from Minnesota in Boston at this like fancy school? And I'm not fancy. And so I think that that really, you know, hurt me to have someone just call me out right away and not really nurture me. Um, you know, obviously I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong, but it would have been so different if someone would have, you know, nurtured. <laughs> right. But now that you're like, the tables are turned and now you're in a position of power, it's probably made you much more thoughtful about um, people starting out in your company. Yep. 100%. And I do think that there is a combination that I subscribe to of, of pushing and nurturing, you know, like I, I'm the first to throw someone into the fire and say, let's see how you do. And, you know, I, but I also believe that you do have to support people and help them you know, find themselves and find like what they're good at and, and what they like. I agree. I also learned that you had another very traumatizing, life-changing experience that happened to you in college. Okay. And um, what's so incredible also, so many women on She Dynasty have had a similar experience um, and have talked about it so publicly, which I've gotten so much feedback from people listening that they're so um, inspired um, that women in leadership positions can openly speak about it without, you know, feeling, um, ashamed. Um, yeah. so tell us, tell us obviously just top line, you know, what happened to you and how it's affected you. Yeah. I mean, honest, I, when I was filling that out, I'm like, I don't know if people really want to hear about this or not, but I, at this stage in my life, I think it's so important and it's so important to talk about it. And especially because I have a daughter and, you know, for young women, it's, it is a different world, but so my first year, at the end of my first year in Miami, I was sexually assaulted. Someone broke into my dorm room and, and you know, beat the hell out of me. And 
the police, the campus police came and it was a football recruit and the, there were some football players that came and, and they were like trying to fix me up and they had, you know, were trying to like put my nose back together. And, you know, they told me like, look, you probably shouldn't report this. Like, you know, we'll take care of him. And I'm like, what? Like, why wouldn't I, we should call the police. And they said, if you call the police, you're going to have to stay in Miami for three months and do this whole reporting thing. And, and I had no money and I couldn't have stayed on campus longer. And so I just left and I went home and never talked about it. And, you know, told my parents and told one of my friends, but literally shut it down, never talked about it again and switched schools and in my mid thirties, I had an incident where I, had, I was at a hotel in London and I was going back to my room and someone followed me and tried to break into my room in London and I froze and had a horrible panic attack. And, and that made me think like, okay, I have some panic. Like I'm not a, I'm not a nervous person. I'm not like a anxious person at all. Like this is a problem. And basically that put me on a journey for till now really of trying to unwind a why I never talked to anyone about it and be you know living in a in a place where as an executive I couldn't travel by myself for 15 years. I had to have people stay in my hotel rooms with me. I you know I would have just horrible anxiety attacks which have now I'm, I've dealt with but it wasn't until I was approached by the producers uh, or the filmmakers from the hunting ground about doing a campaign for them, just completely randomly. They show up in my office and they're like, Let's, we want you to do some kind of like a music video or something around the film. And they start telling me about the film. And I literally just started crying. Wow. And I was like, I was sexually assaulted in college. And, and, they just looked at me and they were like, oh, and I'm like, and I've never told anyone about it. And for me to kind of talk about it through the lens of like watching these other women's stories and people didn't believe them. And, you know, and I was like, I still to this day have the anxiety and the PTSD from that one event. And because I never dealt with it, it's haunted me for my entire life since then. And, you know, I'm much better. I can actually stay in some hotel rooms by myself, but, but I also feel like going through that and I don't know, I'm probably kind of mixing up some of the questions, but I feel like opening up with something that was so personal and something that was so like, I didn't know how to figure it out at that stage in my life when I was in my late thirties, forties, um, was really important for me to, to also be me and be vulnerable. Wow. And, and I was able to like, let people in and let people help me. And I think that's helped me career wise a lot as well. Yeah, I think it's an important, the important takeaway here is, you know, there are a lot of, obviously it's a very different time and yeah. uh, people are, are more brave today to come forward than they were, you know, when we were younger. And so, you know, I can understand and appreciate, I actually had a similar 
um, experience, um, different, but, but similar. Um, my question to you though, you, you mentioned that you had a panic attack years and years later. Was that the first time you had had a panic attack yeah. when you were in that hotel room? Yep. And did yep. you know, did you know what it was when it first happened? Did you understand what was happening to you? No, I had no idea. It took years. Like I started having panic attacks and I couldn't figure out why. And then I talked to a therapist and I never even put two and two together and I kind of had blacked out the whole thing. So I still don't remember most of it. And, and for several years, I actually thought maybe it didn't happen. Right. Interesting. I'm like, maybe I made that up. Right. Well, I was, um, I think it was, I was 23 years old and I was diagnosed with um, severe panic disorder. Um, I had, when I tell you massive panic attacks, I mean, similar situation. I suppressed something that happened. All of a sudden I had my first panic attack. And then I think I'd have like five or six a day. And I had to stop working. I had to stop going to school. Um, I became a complete vegetable just because my my psychologist at the time or psychiatrist put me on um, some sort of medication and I it, it suppressed it, but it definitely also made, like made me a vegetable to the point where I, I wouldn't leave the house. I was so scared. Um, so I can so, so relate. Panic attacks are very, very difficult to explain to people who have never had them. And I, it really honestly wouldn't wish it on my worst, worst yeah. enemy. It's, it's horrible. It's, de- it's debilitating. It just, it stops you in your tracks. You feel, I mean, I don't know about you because I know that everybody's experience is different, but for me, I honestly sometimes felt like I was going to die. And I couldn't explain that to people because people would be like, you're standing right in front of me and there's nothing happening. What do you mean you're going to die? Yeah. It's just this, you can't breathe. You can't see straight. You just, your your brain starts to close in on you. And um, I always tell people panic disorder is to me is a little bit like alcoholism in the sense that once you have panic disorder, and I don't know if you feel the same way, I feel like you always have it. You just know how to manage it. I think I'm a little different. Um, you know, I, mine is so specific about certain, you know, feeling afraid. And it's like, I'm frozen in the, in fear. I am com- stop frozen, can't breathe in fear. And, and what's hard is that that's just not anything that anyone would expect from me. And I remember having a panic attack in an, in the elevator at the Soho house in New York. And it was really crowded and someone jumped and the elevator froze. And I'm not claustrophobic at all, but it was packed. And all of a sudden I just hit the floor, frozen, hyperventilating. And these are all my, like my clients and like agency heads of production and, and all my friends, and, the, and they looked at me like, what the hell? Like, they never, and I felt so guilty for being that way. And, you know, and I think, I'm like, oh, people are never going to look at me as, like, an executive, like, someone who could handle all the stuff that I can normally handle, because they just saw me, you know, getting pulled out by the fire department after being on the ground of an elevator, you know? And... And it was really like something I hid as much as I possibly could, but then just started to kind of build a little group of where, hey, I don't have to travel by myself. Like I just stay at people's houses. Like that's just my thing. 
And it really wasn't until the movie where I was like, wait, I have to actually talk about this because it's making me better. And it's also important to like, let go of it. Cause I, I think I was making it even worse by trying to hide it too. Right, and not deal with it. Yeah. I know everyone's experience with it is very different. You know, for me, it's um, sometimes I can feel a panic attack start to come on, but I've kind of trained myself on how to just like calm and like, yeah. just become Zen again. So, yeah. um, you know, and I know that that's a skill that that is learned by some people, but it's, I think it's so important that you're talking about it. And I know so many people listening um, are going to appreciate your openness and you truly and obviously can be a very powerful executive and still, <laughs> still, still deal with things like this. So I know, it's just crazy what you tell yourself though. Cause it's always like, we all have that kind of imposter syndrome where it's like, yep, everyone was right. You're yeah. not that good because you can fall apart at a drop of a hat or whatever, you know, the two are not connected. I yes. No, they're definitely not. All right. So let's, let's move on. So what was your very first job out of college? Any job? Um, I, my first, well, I was a waitress. I basically wait, waited tables and bartended through college to pay for college. And then I moved to LA day two, got a job at a restaurant. My first customer was Madonna. Wow. And it was a great like industry. And I had never been here before. So I knew nothing about LA. It just happened that I went to the place where all the like young agents were hanging out and, um, and some production company people. So I met tons of people and I would tell everyone I'm a director. And, and they, and I had my student films and they had won awards and, you know, I had my little reel and everyone laughed at me because A, it's LA and B, I was a female director. And it was kind of like, eh, good luck. And I remember interviewing with a director probably shouldn't say his name. And he said, you know, I'm looking for a receptionist. You just need to look good. I don't want any questions. I don't want you to do anything. I'm not going to promise you anything. You just have to do this for two years. I was like, no way. Like, why would I do that? So my first job was I waited on a table full of advertising people. And it was a director who had been an agency producer at McCann in New York and a bunch of creatives. And he was from Minnesota. And so we started talking and they were all talking to me and, and I'm like, what do you guys do? And they said, you know, we make commercials and I'm like, Oh, that's cheesy. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> and they're like, it's, you know, you should come work with us. Like we, you know, we want, we're hiring basically. And I said, no. And then like six weeks later, I called the guy back from a payphone, and I said, you know, what would I do with you? He's like, you can do whatever you want. I'll show you everything. And that was a really amazing start because I was a receptionist, office manager, sales rep. He let me start producing right away. Um, And then I kind of just got the foundation of, all right, this is what the business is. And then I went and started producing music videos. So once again, a simple conversation that you didn't expect shifted your entire direction. Yes. Yes. And, and someone had said, you can take the assistant position for another major Hollywood producer. And they're like, but he hates women and he can throw coffee at you. 
And I was like, all right, I've got this really nice guy from Minnesota who's, who literally is saying you can do anything. And then I've got all these other guys that are like, you know, you're going to do nothing. And it was kind of a no brainer for me. Sounds like you chose the right path. I did, yeah. I don't know though. Did you ever get to direct anything or did you kind of shift um, kind of your role in the business at that point? And I started kind of going down the producer path, but it's funny. I did direct one thing and my husband at the time is, is a lawyer and his law firm had to do this big oil spill cleanup emergency film and had like a, it was like a $200,000 budget or something. And I'm like, oh, I'll do it. I'll direct it. And he's like, fine. I don't, they didn't care. Right. And so it was like, you know, boats and helicopters and tons of people. And, but it turned out to be, you know, a 10 minute industrial film. And I'm like, I, I like what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm going to stay on the producer path. So I understand that you also got married at a very, very young age and you're now divorced. Yes. And I also um, heard a rumor that your ex-husband is now married to somebody that we all may have heard of. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, my ex-husband is married to Kamala Harris, and um, which has really um, been kind of a lovely journey, I have to say, because, you know, obviously I got married when I was 25, had kids, you know, we went down our path, grew apart. It was very traumatic to, to get divorced, and then, you know, you both go down your paths of what's your next step, but we made a very, very strong commitment to each other that we would co-parent and be friends. And we really did do that. And I did an interview with someone about this not too long ago. And, and I remember when Doug first told me that he was dating Kamala, I'm like, wow, she's amazing. Like, don't fuck that up. Like, <laughs> that's a, keep that one. And, you know, and and our kids were in high school and like junior high at that time. So to come into a family with two teenage kids is tough. Wow. And I think she and I really bonded over that because she was great, like came in and, and was very present. And, you know, I think she and I were both strong women and we really respected each other. And we got to be friends. Like genuinely, we have a very modern friendly, close family. <laughs> and, and I love that going through this campaign right now, so many people have reached out to me to say how inspired they are about that, like my support of her and her support of me. And, and I feel like it is something that you never think about until you're in it. And you never think about how pe other people are not in that, you know? Amazing. So I'm going to uh, switch the conversation back to um, you got married at a young age, you had children, obviously at a young age, and you were trying to balance career and um, working and having, you know, kids. Tell us a little bit about how you balanced it. Um, I, when I got married, you had to do a premarital screening. I don't know why, but I was told that where you had to go to your OB and get checked out and, or your gynecologist and get checked out, make sure everything was okay and you didn't have any STDs or anything. And my doctor at that time said, if, if you guys plan on having kids, you should do it sooner rather than later. Oh, wow. 
because I had like terrible endometriosis. And at that point I was producing music videos and I'm like, yeah, I want to have kids. Like, okay, let's do that. And I never even thought about it because I also was the, the person in college that never thought I was going to get married either. Like it just was not even on my radar and never dated. You know, I was traumatized from, you know, being attacked and stuff. But we went into it just like, yeah, we want to have kids. Let's go. And I honestly think that that, you know, I tell people that all the time. Like, I think it made me such a better producer being a mother as well, because you could not get too hung up on one, you know, on any one part of your job because you had to balance it with being a mom and that like nurturing and love and, you know, commitment you make to a child is just so kind of overwhelming and all consuming that I think it, it made me able to kind of look at my job and just not get so like crazy about it. Right. But it wasn't your company at the time you were, you were no. working for another company, which I understand that you um, ran and worked for, for 13 years. Is that correct? Well, at that point I was freelancing. So I was just working with whatever jobs. And then when I had my son, I decided that, you know, I was producing, I was on a music video um, with nine inch nails, like while I was four months pregnant with Cole. And I'm like, this life is not gonna work out with a baby. And, you know, and my husband worked a lot as well. So I kind of flitted around of like, all right, I need to find a staff position and settled after a couple of years with the company that I ended up running. And you were there for 13 years. Yeah. And I understand that you faced a kind of a significant snag, which involved your boss depriving you of an opportunity. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, in, you know, there were not a lot of female owners of production companies and, and thank God now there are. Um, but in those days, there were very few of them and they were run by, you know, mostly men. And my boss at that company, who was a very big personality, um, you know, made it clear to me that I didn't need a raise because my husband was a lawyer. And that, you know, and, and I couldn't, you know, I also couldn't be a mom really. Like I would bring my daughter in when she was born and it was like, oh man, she has kids. No one else had kids. Like, you know, I was, I had kids young. And when I was in my late thirties, I was like, okay, this is not, I need more. Like, I'm not going to just be doing this. I, I was having like the beginning of a midlife crisis. And so he kept saying like, oh, you know, I'm going to retire someday and I'm just going to give you the company. And I'm like, no, like, I don't want that. And all of a sudden I started seeing like, I'm going to be 40 and that entire decade is just going to go away. And I'm still going to be doing the same thing. Like, I don't see this changing at all. Did you I, not believe him that he was going to do that? Or you just no, kind of felt like it was time for you to go? Never, ever, ever thought he was going to do that. So I did a whole presentation to him of what I had done at the company, what the numbers were, how I had built it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I want to be a partner. And I said, I don't, I don't want any money. You don't have to give me a percentage. I just want you to call me a partner. I want everyone to know that this is something I'm building as well. And he said, all right, 
Like basically like you twisted my arm, okay. And I didn't really know what that meant, but we told all the directors, I'm a partner. And then after nine months, nothing had happened. There was no paperwork or no kind of official confirmation. And I called him up and I'm like, hey, am I a partner or what's happening here? And he's like, you know, I thought about it. You can't be a part. I can't have a partner. Wow. And I remember being in the parking lot at Starbucks and feeling like lightning struck me in my head and went through my entire body. And I almost threw up and I was like, I'm out. I'm done with this job right now. You were bold and you were brave. And this is my favorite part of your story. So you made a huge shift, but you did this at the age of 40. And so many people have this stigma that you cannot start your own company this late in life, which is the most ridiculous thing ever, that if you don't start it at 22, it's never going to happen. Yeah. And you started it at 40 and now have built one of the most successful production companies there, there is. Um, so tell us, um, tell us about this amazing company you've built. Tell in your own words, I have done a little, uh, preamble, but I'd love for you to tell people about Pretty Bird. Thank you. Well, so when, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to build my own company. I didn't want to start my own company, but when I decided that I was going to leave the company I was with, one of my directors that had kind of grown up with me had said, let's go start a company together. And he's like, let's go, let's go make it. Like, let's go build our own thing. And I honestly didn't want to do it. I was exhausted. I was in the middle of remodeling a house. I, I literally just wanted to take six months off and, and sleep. And he was like, nope, we're going to do this. And so I thought, all right, what's going to excite me about building my own company? And it's basically, I wanted to start from scratch just to like, say, how could I look at what I've done at the other company and what would I do differently? And how could we build like a more of a creative community here? And, and that was the foundation for it. And it, it was like, let's take the best things out of where we came from and then put in all the things that we want to do and build from there. And I think that that has been the most amazing journey. Like it's made me such a better person. It's made me, you know, all the things that I didn't want to do, which is like finding a name and coming up with a logo and starting a website and all that stuff. Like that is actually what's made the company so great. And, and so it's, I can't, I can't believe that I might not have just out of fear of change that I might not have done it. And, and, and it's like, I agree with you. It doesn't matter what age you are. I now have five companies and in my fifties and like, I would, if I didn't have five right now that I'm trying to do in various stages, I would start another one in a heartbeat because I really feel like it's so important to do it the way that you want to do it. Right. Absolutely. On your own terms, not under yeah. this is, uh, rules, which is so, so important. And I've learned yeah. you too. Yeah, you have. I have. Um, okay, so tell me, um, what was the first moment where you felt like, wow, I'm doing something really great, or you felt like you were acknowledged or your company was really doing something special? There's two moments. One was when we were chosen production company of the year for Ad Age and creativity. And that's something that 
you know, all of us and most of the most of the executives here have been here from you know the first year. And every year we would submit and just try to embellish everything we'd done so much to like get on their radar for the editors there. And the year that we were chosen, I think I was just kind of like, whatever, if we get it, we, you know, we only wanted to be A-list like in the top companies. And I remember waking up to an email that said, um, Oh my God, I'm going to cry just telling the story. I was like waking up and had to get on a flight to go to, I think, New York. And I read the email and I was going through security at the airport and I called my partner, Allie Brown, and I just started sobbing and I could not stop crying. And I thought like, you know, when you looked at our talent, when you looked at what we had done, it, it was just one of those acknowledgements where it's like, what we didn't even expect that. And everything that they said and the people that they interviewed about us, like we were just like, oh my God, like amazing. we did it, you know? And I think, and the other moment is at our 10 year anniversary party, I looked around and Paul and I gave a speech and I looked around at everyone, the community of, filmmakers that started with us as a PA and, you know, executives that started us with us as assistants or receptionist or something. And I was like, this is what we wanted to do. Like we wanted to build an amazing creative community and, and here we have it. Incredible. Such an incredible yeah. accomplishment. Yeah. So two questions. Uh, what is the one piece of work that people would know your company best for? And number two, what is your most favorite project that you've ever been a part of? Hmm. Um, I think most people know us for either Nike spots or Beyonce's formation music video. It's really hard because we do so many different things to pick one thing. Um, I think for me personally, the documentaries that we've been doing are the most you know, rewarding for me. We have the Jane Roe film, AKA Jane Roe that came out last year. Um, we had a film about the green card veterans that are getting deported to Mexico called Ready for War that came out last year. Um, every one of those films is like so special and important that um, it's hard to just pick one thing as I'm sure everyone says, but there's the fun projects and then there's the ones that hold a lot of meaning. So Yeah. Good. And I think, I think really what I'm most proud of is how they all work together. Right. You know, uh, what I'm most proud of is the fact that we're known as a company that, you know, is, is building talent that comes from diverse voices, you know, like we really, really have been out front in getting diverse stories out there and building talent that no one would have touched. Right. you know, two years ago. Perfect segue. So I want to talk a bit about Pipelines. Uh, Pipelines is a nonprofit that you have created. So it's a mobile app that connects underrepresented talent with hard to find um, training and career opportunities in tech, entertainment, and creative industries, which is so, so, so important. And I went onto the website and I watched the, the video, which so eloquently broke down, you know, the issues of racial inequality, of what Pipelines is trying to solve. And the stats were super eye-opening. 
So I learned that when it comes to inclusion in Hollywood, 63.7% Caucasian, 16.9% Black, 5.3% Latino, 8.2% Asian, and 5.9% other. So I want to, you know, obviously understand your inspiration for doing this. I mean, it sounds like it happened very organically through your work, but tell us a little bit about pipelines and, you know, why it started and what the vision is. It's so, so amazing. Well, thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. So pipelines was definitely an extension from what we were doing at Pretty Bird. And as some of our talent like my partner, Paul and Melina Mitsukis and, and other talent were starting to get, you know, a lot of recognition. I was always asked to talk on panels about diversity and like, how do I see it happening? And, and honestly, for me, it was a lot of people just talking and saying, oh, let's have her talk about this, but no action behind it whatsoever, nothing changing. Every room I would sit in, like for a pre-pro was all white except for whatever talent I had. Um, and so I got the idea of creating something that would start a lot earlier than, you know, finding talent that's out there now because I, people are like, well, let's just get more talent. Like, but they're not there. Like this is a creative business. You have to have the talent, but if the talent never even knew about this industry, or any of the jobs in this industry, then they're never going to start to get into the pipeline of, you know, being able to get to that level where we could build them at, at my company. So I actually worked this idea out with my son who was working, writing treatments for me in, in the summer. And I would tell people about it and they're like, oh, it's too big. I'm like, what do you mean it's too big? They're like, it, uh, you know, we just want to like make sure that we're speaking to the, you know, the diverse people that are working in our companies. I'm like, but how many diverse people do you have working in your companies? And it was always like less than 10%. I'm like, so you just want to know how in your agency, like you guys are making sure that you're culturally sensitive to each other. Like that's all you can do right now. And that was, yes, that's all we can do right now. And I really felt like that wasn't enough and, and it wasn't gonna hit hard enough. And I thought if we could create something that was a hub of you know, every job, every mentorship, every internship, every nonprofit working in the space, and not just in you know, creative or advertising or production, but in all industries, like why couldn't we and I also think I had just gone on Tinder at that point. <laughs> and I was like, why isn't there a Tinder for this? And, right. and you know, we could get these kids and that, you know, and my son was like, the kids are only gonna, you know, use something that's on their phone. These kids don't even have access to laptops and desktops. And we started doing round tables about it. And it was like, you know, okay, this makes sense. We need to start when kids are in high school because that's when they're understanding like what their interests are. Yeah. So we have just soft launched pipelines, the app. Um, there's also a web interface for companies. We are trying to encourage, we are the only aggregator of nonprofits. We have over 60 nonprofits that are working in creative entertainment and tech. And now we're getting companies on the platform as well. And it is basically to list internships, mentorships, entry to mid-level jobs. So the demographics from 15 to 30, basically. 
fantastic. Well, I'm excited to sign my company up for it. Such great work, such yeah. important work, so <laughs> great. Um, thank you yeah. so much for doing that. Okay, well, I think you've answered all of kind of my big questions. So what I have next is what I call my rapid fire questions. So just kind of quick one line answers. Okay. And um, they might throw you off, you know, off guard, but that's kind of the point. <laughs> um, all right. Um, what is the biggest issue women face in business? Insecurity. Okay. What is your leadership style? Uh, lead by example. What is your biggest strength? Ambition. Greatest weakness? Insecurity. What one skill do you wish that you had that you don't possess right now? Business school. How do you, what's the one thing you do to practice self-care that's really special to you? Meditate. New. <laughs> Just starting to. What keeps you up at night? Risks I'm taking. Oh, I like that one. Uh, how do you define success? Uh, I don't. I think success comes in milestones and success comes in all different ways, shapes and forms. Perfect. And then my last question is, and this can be a little longer, what actionable advice do you have for people starting out in their careers in your industry? Find the place that you want to be at or you see yourself starting as a company and do anything you can to get into that place. Perfect. Well, I think that's it, Kristen. Hey. Beautiful job. Thank you so much for, for time. I've learned so much, uh, you know, hey. today and, you know, reading everything about you and so incredibly inspired by everything you've done. I'm happy we've become yeah. friends. We found out that our, our, our work is very close to each other. So hopefully we can uh, yeah. have one soon. I'll be over there shortly. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. I love what you're doing as well. And it's an honor to be on your show.